0: This week on the show, we have OpenZFS, Your Data, and the Challenge of Ransomware, an article that you should definitely read. I didn't learn Unix by reading all the man pages and what that entails. Another article I try to answer how to become a system engineer by Rachel Bay, writing shell scripts in new shell that programmers among us should look into, pseudo and signal propagation and what kind of things that entails, infecting SSH public keys with backdoors or useful stuff. Another OpenBSD ThinkPad article, how to get that running and how productive you can be with that and more this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 514, Infecting Public Keys, recorded on the 6th of June, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com BSD Now. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Yeah, we are here again and a couple people had nice feedback for us since we are new in this kind of setting. So thanks for that. And let's jump right into the headlines this week. We have another Clara article, which is kind of a default by now, I would say. Uh, This one is about OpenZFS, your data and the challenge of ransomware.
1: Yes, so... The ransomware attacks have become a plague that affects both individuals and organizations worldwide. According to recent statistics, ransomware incidents have skyrocketed by over 150% in the last two years alone. These attacks have caused substantial financial losses, with estimates exceeding billions of dollars annually. More importantly, they have resulted in significant disruptions to critical operations, compromising the integrity and availability of vital data. Escalating risks and the costly nature of security solutions. The future looks ominous as ransomware challenges continue to evolve. Cyber criminals are constantly adapting their tactics, employing more sophisticated methods to infiltrate and encrypt sensitive data. Unfortunately, the cost of implementing efficient security solutions often surpasses the financial penalties imposed by attackers. This unfortunately, Fortunate reality presents organizations with a daunting dilemma. Invest heavily in robust security measures or potentially succumb to the demands of cybercriminals. Granular control of your data and the role of OpenZFS. Designing storage infrastructure that allows for granular control of data is crucial when combating ransomware threats. OpenZFS, an open source file system, offers a compelling solution in this regard. By integrating OpenZFS into your storage architecture, you gain the ability to implement fine-grained access controls, snapshot-based backups, and advanced data protection mechanisms, empowering you to resist ransomware attacks effectively. OpenZFS, a guardian of data. OpenZFS boasts an array of technical features that enhance data protection and resilience. Firstly, its copy-on-write mechanism ensures that data modification occur automatically, preventing attackers from tampering with files without leaving a trace. Additionally, OpenZFS supports robust checksumming, detecting and mitigating data corruption caused by ransomware or other forms of malicious interference. Snapshots, a powerful feature within OpenZFS, create read-only copies of the file system at specific points in time. By taking regular snapshots, organizations can revert to a known good state in the event of a ransomware attack, effectively neutralizing the impact of the encryption. Furthermore, OpenZFS offers data deduplication and compression, optimizing storage utilization without compromising data integrity. The concept of data replication is central to OpenZFS enabling the distribution of data across multiple devices or locations. In the context of ransomware, this redundancy ensures that even if one copy of the data is compromised, other replicas remain unaffected, preserving access to critical information. OpenZFS as a post-ransomware recovery infrastructure. In the aftermath of a ransomware attack, recovery becomes paramount. OpenZFS's comprehensive data protection features, coupled with its ability to create immutable snapshots provide organizations with an effective infrastructure for recovering from such incidents. By leveraging the snapshot functionality, IT administrators can easily restore files to a pre-attack state, effectively neutralizing the damage caused by encryption. Where do we go from here? As ransomware attacks continue to pose a significant threat to data security, the need for robust and resilient storage solutions becomes paramount. OpenZFS, with its granular control, advanced protection mechanisms, and post-ransomware recovery capabilities, emerges as a reliable ally in the battle against cybercriminals. By implementing OpenZFS with their storage infrastructure, organizations can fortify their data against the menace of ransomware attacks. The current landscape of ransomware attacks highlight the urgency for protective measures. With the number of incidents and associated costs on the rise, Organizations must prioritize data security. While investing in security solutions can be costly, the potential ramifications of succumbing to ransomware far outweigh the initial expense of implementing robust defenses. OpenZFS offers a cost-effective alternative by leveraging its open source nature, enabling organizations to deploy a powerful storage solution without breaking the bank. Leveraging snapshots. Snapshots in OpenZFS are an essential weapon in the fight against ransomware threats, offering a powerful means of defense. These snapshots create immutable read-only copies of the file system, capturing the precise state of the data at a specific point in time. When it comes to combating ransomware snapshots, can play a pivotal role in a speedy recovery. Imagine a scenario, ransomware strikes, encrypting your files and holding them hostage, but fear not, for with OpenZFS and its snapshot feature, you have a powerful ally. By regularly, creating your snapshots of, by regularly creating snapshots of your file systems, you establish a series of known good states impervious to the clutches of encryption. In the unfortunate event of a ransomware attack, you can simply roll back your affected files or entire file systems to a snapshot taken prior to the malicious onslaught. This ability to revert to a pre-attack state effectively thwarts the impact of the encryption, allowing you to reclaim your data without succumbing to the ransomware, ransom demands. This recovery is near instantaneous compared to slow and laborious restorations from backup. Have you considered checksumming? Checksumming serves as a crucial line in the defense against ransomware attacks by ensuring data integrity and detecting any unauthorized modifications or corruption caused by malicious activities. When data is written to a disk within an OpenZFS file system, a unique checksum is calculated and stored for each data block. During subsequent read operations, OpenZFS recalculates a checksum for each data block and verifies if it matches the stored value. If the checksums match, the data is deemed intact and unaltered. However, if the recalculated checksum differs from the stored value, it indicates that the data has been modified or corrupted. Let's not forget about data replication in OpenZFS. Data replication is another critical aspect of OpenZFS that bolsters its resilience against ransomware. By creating redundant copies of data across multiple systems or locations, organizations can ensure the availability and integrity of their critical information. In the context of ransomware, this redundancy plays a crucial role in mitigating the impacts of such attacks. In the unfortunate event of a ransomware attack, where one copy of the data is compromised, and encrypted, the unaffected replicas stored in a different location or device redo. In the unfortunate event of a ransomware attack where one copy of the data is compromised and encrypted, the unaffected replicas stored in different locations or devices remain unharmed. This allows organizations to quickly recover their data by accessing unaffected copies, minimizing the disruption caused by the attack. By having multiple replicas, organizations can avoid paying ransoms and restore their data from known good copies, rendering encrypted files irrelevant. Finally, the conclusion, OpenZFS emerges as the ideal solution for university infrastructures, even in the context of high performance computing. HP OpenZFS stands for SANS as a formidable defense against the rising threat of ransomware attacks. By providing granular controls, robust data protection mechanisms, and efficient recovery options, OpenZFS empowers organizations to safeguard their valuable data. As the challenges posed by ransomware continue to escalate, the need for resilient storage solutions becomes increasingly crucial. OpenZFS not only mitigates risks, but also offers a cost-effective alternative to protect data, ensuring that organizations can maintain control, recover swiftly, and mitigate the damage impact of ransomware attacks. Its technical prowess and unique features make it well-suited for the complex requirements of university environments." Uh, That is not just the whole document. Um, You should go and read the whole document. I've left some out to uh, keep it brief. However, that is quite a uh, interesting uh, take for ransomware. And yes, I can see how that would work.
0: Yeah, and it's affecting pretty much anyone, whether you're a small business or private person, big business, anyway, university. Uh, so have a way to go back to a working state, even uh, if things are not random, but random <laughs> ransomware. It could be data deletion. It could be corruption by other means. It all uh, relies on you being able to get back to a working state. And ZFS is just another rollback away if you do regular snapshots. Okay, cool. Next up is a little bit of a description. Like, um, I didn't learn Unix by reading all the man pages over at the ALT portfolio. Uh, This one has originally been drafted uh, based on a thread on hackers.town after Abby Normal asked the author here to expand on a side comment in a discussion of documentation. So that goes... There's a story old Unix beards tell about how they learned Unix. We all just read old man pages, they say. That's how well written they are. You don't need to read anything else or take any classes. Maybe also pick up a copy of K&R, Koenig and Ritchie, if you're a little iffy on C. <clears throat> so uh, the author here considered himself an old Unix beard, even though they don't have a beard and only got into the game in the days of SunOS 4.1. And until quite recently, they thought it was how they learned Unix. They didn't read all the man pages without any formal coursework and trained themselves uh, up as a programmer to the point where they could get a job in the industry. And it took them three years of self-study and experimentation, consuming nearly all their free time. And in retrospect, they wouldn't recommend the experience, but, you know, it worked out right. But the thing is, this story completely neglects all the things they'd already learned about computers and programming before they got to college. So, as a kid, uh, the author here read every single book in the house, indiscriminately, no matter how boring it will seem to an adult, including a bunch of old computer science textbooks that he had for some reason. And they spent a bunch of time tinkering around with computer programming, mostly not on UnIX and not in C, but still. When it came when it came to the man pages, uh, they had the beginnings of a conceptual structure for understanding systems programming in their brain already. So they realized this only because of the experience they've had over the past two years teaching computer science, specifically CMU's Introduction to Computer Systems course, which is linked from the article if you're interested. Uh, That course is, uh, at first glance, seemed to have a lot of overlap with the content they used to think and uh, they learned from the man pages. But as they repeat the lessons for each uh, new batch of undergraduates, and especially as they spend time helping them with the specific things they get stuck on, They've come to realize that what they're actually teaching is the stuff they already knew when they start reading the man pages. So uh, what would not have been able to get much out of the man pages if they hadn't already known that stuff? So, okay, uh, question is, why does it matter if it didn't learn the trade the way they thought it did? Because first, holding up the man pages as ideal documentation is a mistake. They are pretty darn good reference documentation within their domain, and that's why they appeal so much to experts. If you already know most of what there is to know about a standard C library function or Unix shell command, and you just need a bit of a reminder on how to do a specific thing, the man pages will not let you down. Reference documentation for other languages and tools is often frustrating by comparison. But if you don't already know, if you don't have the concept and the mental models, reference documentation is not what you want. Instead, you need a guide or a textbook. Uh, For example, something like Michael W. Lucas does. (laughs) So uh, that's a good start. The people who insist that the man pages are all that you need will sometimes dismiss guide type documentation as tedious to work through. They'd rather learn things from a reference, they say because that way they can jump around in it and look for the specific bits that they are relevant to them right away. And that's fine if they're right that the stuff they're skipping over isn't relevant to them, but it also has negative practical consequences. If you're in the habit of reading only the bits of the documentation, whatever documentation you have, that you think uh, are relevant right now, you're liable to come away with a mental model that's only vaguely accurate, possibly dangerous, dangerously inaccurate in places. And they think that this is a lot of why the user commentary of the bottom of the online PHP documentation is so full of bad advice. Okay. And if you're only interested in reference documentation yourself, you're probably not giving, going to try to write guides for the software you write yourself. Um, yeah, this is how we get monstrosities like the Git documentation they say here that they are only of any use to someone who already knows how it works and just needs a bit of a reminder. Furthermore, this isn't just about bad documentation. When experts repeat inaccurate stories about how we learn to code, uh, we're setting the next generation of hackers up to fail to learn to code. The jargon file, which records how the generation of programmers before them thought they learned to code, holds up their experience of devoting all your free time to learning computers as necessary. Larval stage, quote, describes a period of monomaniacal concentration on coding apparently passed through by all fledgling hackers. The ordeal seems to be necessary to produce really vividly as opposed to merely competent programmers. Okay, unquote. This may have seemed to be true when it was written, although they believe uh, they smell a variation of the sunk cost fallacy at work, but it doesn't leave any room for people who don't learn things by monomaniacally concentrating on them. Uh, This is not the only place where the jargon files authors fail to imagine how people whose brains work differently than theirs could be any good at computers. Um, They're pretty confident that someone who practices programming strictly as a hobby, less than 10 hours a week, will eventually just be just as good as any of those fledgling hackers who doesn't do anything else uh, with their spare time. And if we tell people that, they won't get uh, to puff out the subject of the unappetizing prospect of not getting to hang out with friends on the weekends. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you just present uh, students with man pages, hey, it's all in there, just read it, and then we'll see each other at the exam. This will not work quite well. So it's trying out things, getting errors, getting something broken, trying to fix it again. That's how you learn Unix or getting into it more.
1: Yeah, this article has some good sage advice uh, for anybody and uh, not just programming, uh, also for sysadmins. Uh, I remember Many many years ago when you couldn't take a mobile phone and there was really no internet access in a data center and you had a host down and you had to get that back up and running. You had to know how to get it up and running. Yeah, but there was certain command lines that you needed to, uh, you know, uh, command operations and that sort of stuff. You need to sort of quickly glance at through the man pages to get the, the server back online. So yeah, there's some really good advice in here. And um, yeah, it's don't don't use man pages as a, as a learning device, yes, it tells you how something works and and learn to detail how that works. But um, yeah, it's nothing like um, some practical uh, some practical experience in in areas that uh, those man pages do cover.
0: Mm. Yeah, you do a lot of things very frequently, like ls. A lot of people have ls down fairly quickly. But if you look at the ls man page, what other options they provide? I mean, that's that would be very Uh, intimidating for a new user looking at all these options. But since you use it so often, it is fairly simple to use and some of the more infrequent uses that you only use once a month or once a year even, if you have to fix stuff in the server room without documentation at hand, then you of course need to look it up first because you don't use it very often and to make sure you're not using the wrong parameters and switches to make things worse. But yeah, um, let's look at other things we have for you this week in the news roundup. For example, we have feedback about, they try to answer how to become a systems engineer.
1: So this is uh, not feedback to the show specifically. This is uh, feedback as in an article. Uh, So the writer of the article goes, I got some anonymous feedback a while back asking if I could do an article on how to become a systems engineer. I'm not entirely sure that I can and part of that is the ambiguity in the request. To me, a systems engineer is a real engineer with an actual certification and responsibilities to generally not be a clown. That's so far from the industry I work in that it's not even funny anymore. Seriously though, if you look up systems engineering on Wikipedia, it talks about how to design, integrate and manage complex systems over their life cycles. That's definitely not my personal slice of the world. I don't think I've ever taken anything through a whole life cycle, whatever that means for software. In the best case scenario, I suppose some of my software has gotten to where it is feature complete and has nothing obviously wrong with it. Then it just sits there and runs, runs and runs. Then someday I move on to some other gig and maybe it keeps running. I've never had something go from run for a long time to be shut down while I was still sitting around. This is not to say that I've had long lived stuff of mine get shut down, I certainly have. It's just that it's all tended to happen long enough after I've left that it wasn't me managing that part of the life cycle anymore. So I've heard about it second or third hand and much later. If anything, some things have lived far too long. My workstation at the web hosting support gig that started its life with me in 2004 as a pile of parts that had formerly been a dedicated server. It had a bunch of dumb tools that I wrote and other people found useful. It should have been used to inspire the real programmers at that company to code up replacements, but seemingly did not. That abomination lived until at least 2011, or five years after I moved on from that company. None of that stuff was intended to run long term, but someone kept tending to it for years and years and years. It was awful. But okay, let's be charitable here. Maybe the feedback isn't asking for the exact definition, but rather something more like how to get a job sort of like the things I've done over the years. That's the kind of thing I definitely could take a whack of answering, assuming you like caveats. I think it goes something like this. You start from the assumption that when you see something, you wonder why it is that way. Then maybe you observe it and maybe do a little research to figure out how it came to be the thing you see in front of you. This could go for just about anything. A telephone, a scale, a crusty old road surface, a forgotten grove of fruit trees, you name it. By research, I mean maybe go poking around, try to open that scale with a screwdriver, get out the the car and walk down the ro- old road or turn over some of the dirt in the field to see if you can find any identifying marks i should also point out this goes to trying to understand how people and groups of people come to be the way they are too but most tend to not respond well being opened with screwdrivers walked on or turned over in the dirt and if they do well don't yuck they're yum <laughs> anyway if you start from this spot then maybe you start coming up with some hypothesis for how something happened and then sort of mentally file that away for later. Or maybe even write it down. Then as more data comes down the pipe over the years, you revisit those thoughts and those and refine them. Some notions are discarded and noted as why, but others are reinforced and involved. Do this for a while and sooner or later you might have some working models. They might not be necessarily the actual explanation for why something is the way it is but it gives you a starting point. Then one day something breaks and you end up getting involved. It might be a high level system that's new to you but it has some low level stuff deep inside and you recognize some of that. One of those low level things had a history of doing a certain thing and that never changed. They might have build a whole obscure system over the top of it, but the fundamentals are still there and they still break the same way. You go and look and sure enough, some obscure thing has happened. Nobody else saw something like this before. And so when you point it out and flip it back to a sanity to restore the rest of the system, they look at you like you've just pulled off some deep magic. The question is, did you really? It's all relative. If you've been poking and potting at things and have remembered the results of these experiments over the years, it's not really new to you. It's just one of many events and might not be anything particularly special by itself. It Just happened to be important on this occasion. Summing up, the fact I've seen some of this stuff before is just linked to some chance events in my life, combined with doing some kind of ridiculous work for a rather long time now. There are plenty of other times when something broke, or generally flaky, and I had no idea what it could possibly be and had to work up from the first principles. For someone who's just getting started, it's a given that you haven't seen many of these events yet. Don't feel too badly about it. If you keep doing it, you'll build up your own library of wacky things that could only be earned by slogging away at the job for years and years. Also, if you think this is nuts, And choose another path I don't blame you this is nuts and it's entirely reasonable to seek something that doesn't require years of arcane experiences to somehow become effective Mm. I did skip over a bit in that article uh, so go go ahead and uh, read the article out of the show notes there's a little bit more in there that's of interest uh, of examples of this person's life we have many war stories, all of us. Uh, I'm sure you've got plenty, Benedict. Over the oh, years,
0: yeah. <laughs> and that's the interesting part. I mean, Unix is used very differently by many people, and being a sysadmin is kind of you grow into this role. There's no here's the uh, the training manual for it because companies are different; they run different services, and you just administer as a beginner, and maybe you have some seniors that you can ask. Um, but if you're starting out, I mean. There's a lot to learn and a lot of things you could do wrong, but hey, it's a part of the learning. All right, uh, let's jump into the next bit, which is writing shell script in new shell. So this article covers this a bit more in detail. Uh, they start with, uh, they don't like bash. It's just too confusing. Do I need to use double brackets for this? Do I need to quote this? Am I still writing bash or am I sprinkling in some bits of shell? I can never remember. So um, they provide a couple examples here. POSIX conform and some in bash only. So uh, if you remember, the brackets are are bash extension that don't work in uh, bin sh in case of Double brackets, for example. So uh, if you are stuck writing bash script, use Shellcheck to check it for bugs. Yes, I've used that myself. It's very uh, helpful to make things a bit more portable and also avoid some stupid mistakes you may make or edge cases. So at the same time, they keep finding myself uh, or they keep finding themselves writing shell scripts because sometimes it's just so darn convenient. Sure, I could use a real programming language, but it gets annoying pretty quickly when the script is really just driving external commands. So let's try using new shell. So this is newshell.sh, very helpful uh, domain name here. I will let you produce their website on your own, but the key takeaways are that NewShell is a modern alternative that tries to avoid many of the pitfalls of Bash and other shells and to provide the same scripting environment. So they provide an example here, ps-pipe-sort-by-r-mem, Then they pipe that to select and give it uh, two column names, name and mem, and then say pipe first 10. That gives it kind of an SQL-like table uh, that shows you, well, the first 10 processes uh, ordering by memory, of course. So the top ones are at the top, of course, and uh, going down. And that looks more, you know, Pleasing to the eye. Uh, you will also notice that in new shell you work with structured data. Each of the commands understands what's being passed in. That's probably a bit more controversial among Unix enthusiasts who prefer using plain text, but honestly, I don't really mind. Reminds me of PowerShell. Of course, the same thing could be achieved in other shells, but it's often either more involved or hard to remember. So they provide a bash Z shell example and then another one in Z shell um, down below. So using new shell as an actual terminal shell is a good one and well, but I think a more interesting use case is to use to write scripts. As an example, let's write a script that will sum up all the numbers passed in as arguments. New shell scripts are executed, top to bottom is any other script, but to get access to command line arguments, we don't need to define a main function. Okay, there's an example there. Uh, It's kind of difficult to read uh, source code on the show, so you can kind of uh, look into that yourself. Uh, there's a couple more articles illustrating the language or the program, as well as arguing for the use of new shell, uh, which is certainly something people should look at if they want to get more uh, serious shell scripting going. Okay, next up.
1: sudo and signal propagation. Mm. This, this week I spent some time debugging a curious case where signals were not being delivered to a sudoed process. Consider this shell script. This is a shell script here. Uh, what should be printed? If you guessed dead, then you would be correct. However, when I run in CI, I was seeing the opposite. The following run from a created CI environment through Docker. Uh, so this uh, runs the script again and says, uh, comes back with still running. Signal propagation. Before going deeper, we need a little background on how sudo handles signals. According to the man page, quote, When the command is run as a child, the sudo process, sudo will relay signals it receives to the command. The SIGINIT and SIGQUIT signals are only relayed when the command is being run in a new PTY or when the signal was sent by a user process, not the kernel. This prevents the command from receiving SIGINIT twice each time when the user enters control C. Some signals such as SIGSTOP and SIGKILL cannot be caught and thus will not be relayed to the command. This makes sense. Signals need to be relayed by sudo to the process it's managing. Otherwise, scripts would need to calculate the child PID or send signals to the appropriate process group, a rather arcane concept. It would be much simpler to run a background sudoed instance and send signals to dollar $BANG as we did in the test script. However, there are some drawbacks to this approach. The documentation goes on to say, quote, as a special case, sudo will not relay signals that were sent by the command it is running. This prevents the command from accidentally killing itself. On some systems, the reboot utility sends sigterm to all non-system processes other than itself before rebooting the system. This prevents sudo from relaying the SIG term signals it receives back to reboot, which might then exit before the system actually rebooted, leaving it in a half dead state, similar or single user mode, end quote. While this note is not directly related to our curious issue, because we're not getting the DD to send send signals, it was important to note that there are special cases carved out. Changes in sudo. Keeping in mind the aforementioned signal propagation corner cases, the obvious suspect is a change in sudo. From comparing the local version to the CI version, 1.9.13P2 versus 1.8.21P2, we discovered this commit, which is a link to the actual commit, which landed in 1.9.13P1. The old behaviour before the change was to, quote, only forward user-generated signals not sent by a process to the command's own process group, end quote. This explains the discrepancy we saw earlier. Bash runs all the commands in the script in the same process group, so kill signals were being ignored by sudo because kill is in the same process group as dd. In my opinion, this is surprising and unexpected, if only because the behavior was undocumented. That being said, I did manage to find a zero upvote stack overflow answer for a set SID workaround, but I think that just proves my point. Fortunately, as of November, 2022, the new behavior is to quote, forward signals from a process in the same PGRP if the PGRP leader is not either sudo or the command itself, end quote, which fixes the script use case and obviates the need for a set SID workaround. Complexity. I had a remark a few months ago. I was surprised the sudo project has over 12,000 commits. Now I'm no longer surprised. Behind a rather simple interface from a common use case perspective lies a mountain of complexity. That being said, I'm still quite surprised it took over 40 years for this surprising and undocumented behavior to be fixed. Huh.
0: Yeah, yeah, some things uh,
1: take time to <laughs> come to the surface. It's those corner cases that you can't seem to find, but you'll hit it at some point and you go, ah. Yeah, I should have thought about that earlier.
0: Um, but nevertheless, uh, this is now the namesake uh, article for this episode, Infecting SSH Public Keys with Backdoors. So that sounds scary, and it certainly is to a certain degree. Uh, in this article, you will learn how to add a backdoor to the SSH public key. The backdoor will execute whenever the user logs in. The backdoor hides as an unreadable long hex string inside SSH authorized keys or SSH ID underscore uh, whatever the name is .pup. So the TLDR reads, simply prepend any SSH public key with the following backdoor string up until but not including the SSH ED255 or whatever. So there is an email section there that gets uh, some very long string of numbers and yeah, that, uh, yeah, letters and numbers uh, that gets piped to xxd-r-ps and that is the whole thing. So root is not needed for that, which makes it even more difficult to work around. Uh, So what's the purpose? We're First for the lulz, right? Second is the restart your backdoor after server reboots, similar to infecting crontab or the bash RC. The third is spread laterally. Admins are known to copy their SSH public keys to new servers. Own them. Uh, The fourth is cloud deployments often copy the admin's public key to new instances, and now they copy your backdoor inside as well. So the nitty-gritty for that is the OpenSSH has an unsung feature to execute a command instead of a shell when a user successfully logs in. This feature is used by AWS, for example, to tell the customer not to log in as root, so it can be also used for useful things instead of infecting uh, other computers. The trick is to use OpenSSH command equals feature and silently start our backdoor and afterwards execute the user's shell with PTY without the user noticing it. So the details are basically uh, the backdoor string uh, is dissecting uh, the no user rc no equals x11 forwarding is a ruse to throw off any prying eyes. It can be omitted so that no one scrolls to the right of this long incantation. And the command equals string is where the real magic happens. So uh, they provide a shorter version that just does hello hello world or hello backdoor. Uh, Basically, um, you encode what you want to execute. In hex to a hex string, and then you decode it with the command uh, by piping it to XXD equals R dash, uh no, `xxd-r-ps`, dash dash and then it executes this thing you want to actually do. The actual backdoor string is a bit more complicated. It checks whether you are running a shell, whether a.ssh SSH directory exists. Uh, then, if not, then it creates that, and you know it does all kinds of bad things, doing a couple. Of W gets even to download certain things from other servers and you're already in hell by that time you have this on your machine so definitely check out the whole article and make sure to not get infected by
1: that yeah those ruse there that the, the PowerShell. it's like just casually glancing at that i've just gone hey what's going on here what are we talking about OpenSSH on Windows, but yeah, now it's just as, as the uh, writer uh, admitted that it's just a, another ruse to uh, throw you off the scent. Yeah, hidden the plain sight. <laughs> uh, and uh, summing things up, uh, we've got uh, running OpenBSD on a ThinkPad, the good. It's been an overall positive experience. Uh, this is an article by Douglas, uh, written in January 2023. I'm reading this article as the the author of the article. So uh, in a previous post, I discussed some of the negative experiences that came with daily driving at OpenBSD on a ThinkPad T420S. I'm still using that same laptop and OS combination though, so in spite of these issues, the good seem to outweigh the bad. So in this article, I want to discuss some of my positive experiences with the shift. Most things just work. This hasn't been my first foray into BSD-based desktop systems. Some years ago, I decided to install FreeBSD on a computer. It seemed the obvious choice, being more desktop-orientated, having more software, better performance, etc. However, I barely ever used that system during the time when I had it because there were so many usability issues, from audio to backlight control to suspend-resume. So many basic features simply didn't work out of the box. They certainly can be made to work, and maybe I just got unlucky with the hardware I was using a ThinkPad t 30 But I was a project and a half just getting that to a usable state. Given its reputation, I fully anticipated OpenBSD would be similar, if not worse. But I could not be more wrong. The install went off without a hitch using laptop's Ethernet port initially to download the wireless driver and as soon as I got DWM installed and running I was pleased to find that the laptop's function keys all worked even without configuring them in DWM itself. Audio worked, backlight and volume controls were good to go. Suspend and Hibernate also worked without any issues after starting the APMD service. I was able to connect immediately to my Wi-Fi network, again no issues. I even got printing working with these, though that one did require a little man page reading. Frankly, it reminded me of when I first tried Pop OS 20.04. I installed it, booted it up, everything just worked. I got most of my Unix experience in the early 2010s, hacking away on Arch Linux. So to have everything work immediately was a pleasant shock. I felt the same way upon installing OpenBSD relative to my experience with FreeBSD. Easy access to recent software. Most of the time. In recent years, most of my Linux boxes have run versions of Ubuntu, Pop OS, neither of which have particularly aggressive update cycles. This means that the software available in the repositories will be a few versions old. There are plenty of workarounds, PPAs, building from source, etc., but they all added an extra level of annoyance to managing a system. For example, I was experimenting with MPV for watching YouTube videos. However, the version of MPV that I'll available on my Ubuntu workstation at the university was old enough that it didn't support YTDLP, only YouTube DL. This rendered it effectively useless for this purpose. So my only options were to A, update to a new version of Ubuntu, or B, compile a new version of MPV from source. The former wasn't possible because of the IT department's unwillingness to install anything, but an LTS version of Ubuntu and 2204 hadn't come out yet, and the latter led to a build dependency hell like none I've ever seen. I eventually gave up on that particular machine and waited for the 2204 release. On OpenBSD, by contrast, much of the software available for the ports tree is kept up very up-to-date by its maintainers. Running current, the only time when I've ever had to bypass the repositories and build from source was when NeoVim's development branch moved to version 0.9.0. The port was still on 0.7.2 at the time and all of my plugins updated for... 0.9.0, 0.9.0, which broke compatibility with the version of NeoVim I was work using. Port has since seen a few updates and is now on 0.8.2, but I'm going to keep running my own version of NeoVim until the ports tree catches up with 0.9.0. This particular situation probably speaks more to the joys of NeoVim plugins than any other, anything else, but that's a rant for another day. Additionally, i found that there's software in the OpenBSD ports tree that isn't typically found in other systems package managers. For example, Hugo Extended. I use it for this website and on Ubuntu based systems at least. I've historically needed to download and install it manually from Hugo's website. Not so with OpenBSD. It's as simple as a package add away. Sane system management. OpenBSD is incredibly easy to manage. As simp- a simple as an example, connecting to a wireless network is as simple as I have config, your device, NWID, your extended SSID, and then WPA key and the key. And then after that, getting a list of available networks is ifconfig device scan. If you want to connect a device on network startup, then just copy the command arguments into the etc hostname.device and add inet autoconf to the end of the file and you're auto-connected on boot. Great documentation. OpenBSD has amazing documentation, though you'll never know it if you simply used an internet search engine. This is because the majority of the documentation exists in the form of man pages that come pre-installed with the operating system. You'll often see comments on the internet about how well-written these man pages are, but this is a difficult thing to really comprehend until you've had to experience them, especially if you are only familiar with the manuals that come with Linux software on with software on Linux. Oh, I know where he's coming from on that. Let me put it this way: on Linux, there's a program called TLDR that is used to give simple examples of how to use programs. Rather than using the provider manuals, users instead get a different standalone program that provides information in a more useful manner. In OpenBSD, there is isn't a need for TLDR. The manual is just set up to be actually useful in the first place. Notably, almost all of the manuals actually have example sections at the end that contain examples that would be loaded into TLDR. Exposure to new software. Pretty much all of the software that I regularly use is available on OpenBSD. However, because I'm using it on the decade-old laptop, some of these programs do not perform particularly well, which has pushed me into looking for lighter alternatives. This has been a net positive to my workflow in a lot of ways. Uh, The story goes on, but we'll move down to the conclusion. It is list conclusion. This list is not by any means complete but I think that it includes all of the major rationale reasons why I enjoy using OpenBSD on a 10-year-old laptop. There are, of course, aesthetic reasons for this choice as well. I really admire the simplicity of OpenBSD. Frankly, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but I can say that I derive a lot of pleasure from using this system. There's some very very interesting takes in this. uh, I'm a bit on the fence about the, the comments about free BSD. Yes, you know, if you haven't, um, you know, set up one, there there is a bit, but there's some really good guides out there, and there's a lot of people that spend a lot of time, you know, tweaking and tuning, and you know, they everybody writes up the best way that that's done done for them, and this is a good one for OpenBSD users. So if you need to use OpenBSD, this article is a really good one to to follow. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and since you have the experience of having or running both FreeBSD and OpenBSD, which I never got into. I mean, I I think I have once installed OpenBSD, but switched back to FreeBSD after a while. And so you have kind of more experience of day-to-day use and how uh, they differ in certain ways, but also in things they have very much in common. So that's quite nice. Okay, uh, that really would have brought us into our feedback and questions section, but we didn't have any so far. Uh, But definitely let us get this more into future episodes by sending us feedback or questions or blog posts or articles that you found or anything you want to discuss with us, a bit of asynchronously, but why not? This is all going to feedback at bstnow.tv and then it will appear in a future episode. BSDNow is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. TarSnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Uh, any parting words that we have this
1: week? <laughs> oh, no, it's uh, it's been great. Um, mm-hmm. I've enjoyed uh, my first uh, two episodes. So um, thank you for the audience and uh, the positive feedback you've given. And uh, I look forward to uh, working with the team going into the future.
0: Yeah, excellent. Uh, it was a nice recording session with you and... I also look forward to more, and we will definitely uh, look forward to the feedback that we receive. Maybe we get some more people in the area uh, to interview with you or have a bit more news from OpenBSD this way. We'll see how this goes. I'm I'm fairly positive about this uh, change uh, being also interesting for our readers and um, even Alan coming back after a while as an interview partner, for example. So we'll see how this goes. Cool. Then we leave you at that and uh, have a nice week until next week where we get a fresh new episode with that other co-host that we still have. You probably remember his name. Uh, And then we'll leave you at that. Thank you.
1: Thank you. See you later.